Good afternoon, Airport Wild. Uh, coming to you live from Arizona. Uh, it's currently approaching about 115 today, so I am conveniently sitting indoors where there is air conditioning. Uh, I was sitting down doing some editing, wanted to get this podcast out to you. Uh, I think this is a really cool podcast. We are able to sit down with Brandon Gio, uh all the way over in Arkansas. Uh, and we sit down and we talk about drones. We talk about how they are applicable to wildlife management. Uh, we talk about using them for uh, wildlife abatement, uh, just surveys. Uh, we talk about some of the ins and outs, how to get started using drones, some legalities about drones. Uh, just a ton of information. Really, really cool podcast episode. Uh, yeah, so sit back, relax, grab your favorite snack and a drink, and enjoy the show. Frisbee isn't designed for controlled flight, so it is not an aircraft. Hawks don't like 120 decibel personal defense alarms. We got Brandon Gio um, in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, Brandon, uh, Brandon, do you mind introducing yourself and maybe giving a little background, like maybe how you got into what we're going to be talking about today? Absolutely. I've, uh, I'm glad to be here. I've spent 13 years in the aviation management world at two part 139 airports. I've been pretty heavily involved in wildlife control at both. Uh, at the same time, I've also been uh, heavily involved as one of the nerds out there in the field flying RC airplanes around for 13 years. And a few years ago, as the, the technology and the use of drones came along, and in my experience in aviation safety at airports and flying these things came along, there was this weird convergence among the two. And I've been very, very blessed to be uh, asked to participate in a lot of the discussions that affect airports and airspace regarding UAS or unmanned aircraft systems or drones, whatever you want to call them, whether you're a purist or not. Um and I, I currently, I'm the co-chair of the AAAE's UAS working group, and we work very hard amongst the airports, private industry, and the FAA to help integrate these within the near airport and uh, airspace to avoid <laughs> swapping paint with aircraft, as well as using them safely and effectively for everyone involved. Um, so I've started my own business. I, I, I am the owner of Unmanned Aerial Solutions of Arkansas. I provide education and training uh, for people that are or organizations that are wanting to use UAS in a safe and ethical way. Very cool. And then um, can you go into the food? Like uh, what actually is like what's a like what is a drone? Because, I mean, you hear this word thrown around and um, I've heard the the arguments that drones versus RC, you mentioned having RC planes. Like, is there an actual difference between RC and drones, or is it kind of this, this intermingling of words? It, it depends on who you're talking to. If you're talking to an RC guy who's flown them for 13 years, there's absolutely a difference. Your your RC airplanes are generally thought of as uh, being within visual line of sight, so you're seeing the aircraft the entire time. It's generally a, a historical model of another airplane. I've got more Spitfires and Messerschmitts and Focke-Wolves throughout the house than anybody would ever want. Um, and you're flying it. The key thing here is it is being flown within visual line of sight for recreational purposes, which means for your personal enjoyment. 
Uh, when the multi-rotor drones came along, they were under the same regulation. Uh, unfortunately, they had different capabilities. You know, long-range GPS, uh, first-person video to see what the aircraft saw over a long distance. So their capabilities enabled them to go farther and higher, and there started to be an issue, an issue there. The FAA, under reauthorization at the end of last year, did kind of... Uh, initially, the, the RC airplanes were under a different rule, a special rule for model aircraft. As far as the FAA is concerned, they're all the same. As of 2012, if it flies, it is designed for controlled flight in the air. It is an aircraft. So RC airplane or a drone are both considered an aircraft in the eyes of the FAA because they're designed for controlled flight in the air. A Frisbee isn't designed for controlled flight, so it is not an aircraft. So this is what allows the FAA to have purview over them, uh, to require licenses for them. Fun fact, this is also why you can't shoot one down if it's flying over your house, is it is considered a violation of the Aircraft Sabotage Act, or if you mess with the, the radio frequencies, there's a bunch of FCC wiretap laws that you run afoul of. So it depends on who you talk to. Legally, there's no distinction between the guy flying a Spitfire model airplane and the guy flying a DJI Phantom 4 or a Mavic or something like that. Uh, as far as the people that are actually doing it, there's actually some pretty significant differences. But that's, I don't want to confuse anybody with that. Legally, they're all the same. Right. But I mean, but going by that, I mean, legally, it's the same as somebody flying a, a Piper Cub, too. Um, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's just going to muddy the waters a little bit more then. Well, it does, and there's. It, it's one of the first things that I tell people, whether they're starting out learning to fly these things or going after their remote pilot certificate or anything else, or starting a drone program, I tell them, if you keep in mind that you treat this like it is a manned aircraft with right. safety management, with hazard vulnerability analysis, with training your pilots, with pre-flight inspections, with figuring out where you're going to fly ahead of time, pulling the weather, all these different things. If you treat it as an aircraft as opposed to a toy, you will be in much better shape as a result. You'll make safer decisions. You'll be on the legal side of things. Plus, you're going to maximize the effectiveness of this resource. Yeah, that's pretty interesting, though, is that yeah, just how everything is – I mean – yeah, just how everything is is kind of it's it's different, but it's the same. It's like you said, it kind of depends on whose eyes you're looking through as to how. Um, although, I mean, everybody, you kind of have to look through the eyes of the law, though. And in that eyes, it's it's all pretty pretty similar. That those uh, are the ones, right? So you mentioned the licensing. I mean, I, I mean, for for these drones, um, and all for RC aircraft as well. Now, uh, there is a licensing portion to this now i mean you can't just go buy dji um that's a brand of, of drone for folks that might not know um you can't just go out and buy one take it out back and, and start flying i mean there's there's licensing there's regulations i mean um uh maybe we can talk a little bit more about that licensing part i mean all because it all funder um falls under uh part 107 if i remember right um, yes yes and no yes and uh, We'll break it out from the beginning. First off, there's a difference between recreational flying and commercial flying. Recreational flying is where you are flying for your own personal enjoyment. And this is where you go out and you fly it and you have a good old time and, and it's just you out buzzing around, you're not bothering anybody, that sort of thing. Um, if you're going to fly recreationally, 
after reauthorization this year, you'd have to, number one, register the aircraft. It costs the same amount to register one of these as it does a real one. It's five bucks. Anyone tries to charge you more, do not put your credit card in. Uh, so there's your first one. Uh, the second one is that you have to, for the recreational guys, are going to have to pass a knowledge test. Uh, the knowledge test is an online deal. It hasn't been developed and released yet. It's going to be very basic. It's just going to make sure that if someone's buying one for recreational purposes, they know what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. So that's their their regulation and, and testing requirement for them. For the commercial side, commercial flight is anything other than recreation. So that means if you're flying for an entity, so if you're flying for an airport or for a company, that's a commercial flight. If you're flying, uh, if you're filming the high school football game for them, but you're not getting paid, that's a commercial flight. You're flying for your buddy's car dealership or something, or if you're making money off of it. So anything other than recreational flying is commercial, and that falls under Part 107. Um, <clears throat> for commercial operations, there's two ways to do this. Um, the first one is to get a remote pilot certificate under Part 107. And it's... It's it's great. You do not have to have any flight hours like you do for a man pilot certificate. You know, a, a private my private pilot license is forty. It was a minimum of forty hours of flight time, including cross country and solo and dual and a bunch of other things. Um, to get your one hundred and seven remote pilot certificate, you have to pass a test, and it's it, that's the good news. The bad news is it's a pretty stout test from the FAA. They're going to make sure that you know what the regulations are and how to make safe decisions. And it covers the test is over regulations, airspace, weather, loading and performance, or weight and balance is what it really is, and then also operations in the field. And each crack at the test is $150. So go through the test, you pass it, you upload it, you get your license, and you've got your remote pilot certificate for two years. You have to renew it every two years. Um, the other way to do it is what's called a COA, a Certificate of Authorization. And this is designed mainly for police, fire, incident command, public aircraft use, that kind of thing. And this one is more flexible. There's some restrictions under Part 107. You can't fly at night. You can't fly uh, over people, that sort of thing. Right. And that's where you have the 400-foot the ceiling as well, too. That's right. You're supposed to stay below 400 foot AGL or above ground level unless you are flying over an obstacle like a like a tower or something. Then you can fly up to 400 feet above it as long as you're close to the tower within 400 feet slant distances. Slant okay. distance, excuse me. Uh, under a COA, you can actually get more freedom to do a lot more things. The only problem is you have to reinvent the wheel. You have to explain to the FAA how you'll certify pilots how you'll register your aircraft, how you will operate it, how you will keep accidents from happening based on where you want to fly. I mean, there, it's it really is reinventing the wheel. So 107 is, it's a stout test, but you, you have just some basic limitations. You can't fly over people, can't fly at night, can't be uh, uh, over 400 feet AGL, can't be under 100 miles an hour, uh, like we're all doing that one. Uh, that kind of thing. There's some regulation limitations there. COAs are more, they, they give you more freedom on the back end, but you have to reinvent the wheel to get there. Right. Um, for airports specifically, and those that are flying near airports, the FAA has really been encouraging people to go and fly under Part 107 as opposed to COAs. So the COAs are a little harder to get. 
Um, and the FAA has really been striving to make 107 easier for us to use, especially in the near airport environment through the Lance and other technologies like that. All right. So there's, I mean, obviously, just like anything else having to do with like the FAA or anything, there's, there's a lot that goes into all this. Right. Um, but then, all right. So let's kind of uh, shift gears a little bit. You had mentioned flying near airports. Um, right. So let's stick kind of that topic uh i mean this is a wildlife program um uh so how could one of these drones be useful to somebody trying to that's doing wildlife management in an airport scenario whether it's biologist operation staff whomever is conducting the wildlife control there first off if you can get it worked out to where you can use these in the near airport airspace assuming let's put that to the side for a second we can discuss that here in a few minutes if you can get that signed off and worked out you have enormous benefits off of using these things um and we talk about drones most people think about multi-rotors as far as the faa is concerned it's anything remotely piloted so nobody on board under 55 pounds so that includes your multi-rotors, your fixed wings, uh, ornithopters. We've seen those come out, uh, the, the rowbirds and things like that. They are incredibly useful. And if you go in, in the in the Cleary and Dolbeer text, uh, the the FAA, or excuse me, the Air Force's bash team started experimenting with using RPVs or remotely piloted vehicles for dispersing high altitude birds and things like that, using the old gas powered 72 megahertz uh, RC airplanes, I think back in the 80s, the, the 80s and 90s. Um, and they noted in the text that they, were, that they were very effective, but there was also a high, a high loss associated with these things because people were crashing them. Uh, now you've got uh, RC aircraft that will land themselves, uh, the fixed wing birds are excellent for going after some of your higher altitude birds, uh, hawks and, uh, and other raptors, especially, uh, turkey vultures and things like that do not like, uh, something bigger than them circling them. And it, 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 the, the form that it takes, uh, doesn't have to be anything specific. Um, there is a, a, a kit out there called the EPP Eagle that looks just like a bald eagle. When you put this thing together, it's a fixed-wing airplane with uh, with a motor on the front, and it looks the part. And, and small birds, and even medium-sized ones, don't like that thing circling around behind them. Um, so they're very, very effective for dispersal. At the, in low altitudes, uh, multi-rotors are great for chasing after birds that are, that are roosting on the ground. Uh, small birds, purple martins, starlings, uh, Canada geese. They don't like them either. So dispersal is one of the uses, but there's more to it, actually. You can use it for documenting the area, uh, documenting habitat issues. If you've got an area of the airfield that is flooding, put this thing up and fly over it. You can get a close-up video in 4K resolution to show what the problem is, how the birds are roosting in it, how it's right off the end of your runway, and this needs to be remediated. Um a lot of the, like the last generation ones up to where we are now, they will actually, if you take photos with it, it will tag it with the GPS latitude and longitude of each photo. So what I've done for mapping projects is swing the camera straight down and then just take a photo every two seconds as I mow the lawn over an area, go online and put them all together in a tile map. 
and that will automatically stitch them together that you can upload to Google Earth. You can use it for tracking an area, tracking discrepancies, roosting locations. Uh, the, lo the, 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 the potential uses for these things are absolutely enormous. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. I mean, that's, I mean, I didn't know about the, the, the foot, like geotagging and then be able to stitch them all together. I mean, that would be right. I mean, it just, I mean, it feels like, I mean, just right now we're just kind of scratching the surface of what th these things can be used for. Um, right. I think I read once about uh, possibly attaching like thermal cameras to these things for tracking big game, um, might be inside in a, in a timbered area uh, right. where, where a spotlight survey is just not going to pick them up. You could do it. That could be done today. I fly yeah. a, a unique uh, Typhoon H hexcopter, and you can get a thermal camera for about fifteen hundred bucks. And it's one button. The old camera comes off, new cameras on. You have instant thermal and low light camera uh, footage off of this. DJI makes a, a Mavic Enterprise right now that comes with a electro optical, you know, visual camera on it and a thermal camera next to it. You can swap between them in flight. So, I mean, these things are, are absolutely great for, for your surveys, spotlight surveys, documenting how many, how many birds you have on the airfield or you know, large mammals that are, that are hiding off in areas you can't necessarily get to. It's, it's absolutely excellent for it. Right. And actually thinking about um, the birds, too, uh, I read a, a study. Um, I mean, this was a few years ago now, so it's going to be even more so nowadays. But we're for doing point counts. Um, I mean, the old, I mean, the way I started doing that, it's just you walk out in the field. If we're doing grassland bird surveys, you just walk out in the field, you have a pre your preset location, and you just yep. stand there for, for five minutes with your two-minute cool-down period, three minutes of surveys, and then you keep going through, but you're making all these disturbances versus they're using drones now with a microphone hanging, I think it was like 50 feet below the quad, the quad rotor, and then the cool-down period was like 30 seconds. Uh, because there's just less impact from, I mean, you don't have a person going through this grassland and then, but so you can fly this drone and it's going to hit the exact point every time. Cause it could be GPS located. It's not going to be like, right. it's not going to be like, Oh, I think I was over. I might have been 20 yards that way last time I did this, but now I'm over here. Cause this is just, I, I, I'm in kind of ballpark. Um, unless right. you're actually sitting right there with the GPS and you got, okay, I'm in the exact same spot every single time. Um, right. So I mean, that's I mean, bird surveys, big, um, uh, large mammal surveys, small mammal surveys. I bet you, um, I mean, there's probably a way to to. I bet you somebody's got a UV camera out now that can probably spot the urine spots from from mice, from rodents. Um, well, I've got a thermal camera at the house, and uh, I, if I, if one of the cats sits down for more than a couple of minutes and moves, it will leave a heat heat signature behind them. So you will get something like that. It just depends on how far away the, the camera is. Are you at 100 feet? Are you at 200 feet? That kind of thing. Because the higher up you go, the more distance the camera is going to cover, but you may lose detail and resolution at the bottom of it. So that's that's going to be something that, that professionals who experiment with these things are going to develop in the field for best practices, for what's most effective as well as what's safe. Oh, yeah. I mean, for sure. I mean, you, um, somebody that, that might be doing control and – in New England, where it's heavily timbered, is or it has harsher winters, is going to be totally different than somebody that's doing management in Kansas. I mean, where it's right. grasslands. Um, yeah. yeah, you're going to have two different um, different wildlife setups, wildlife wildlife needs. I mean, Midwest, you're going to be dealing a lot. I mean, not that 
New England doesn't have waterfowl, but it's going to be a lot more of a, a big deal in Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, um, and that, sure. that kind of that mid-continent um, migration path with Central and, and uh, Pacific. Or <laughs> yeah, we're just with those flyways there. Um, it's too early in the morning. Um, right. Uh, yeah. So I mean, the the it's unreal what these things are going to be capable of, or what they already are uh, 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 capable of. Um, so, I mean, we've covered licensing. We've covered what you can do. Um, so let's talk about if somebody, so we already know that if somebody wants to get into this, um, whether it's a wildlife program, like at an airport or just an individual wants to get into it, uh, we already covered the licensing that's required. What, is there like a, a basic gear list you need? Like, I'm, I'm, you're going to need a drone of some sort, but. Can you go through maybe like what if somebody like say I wanted to, I was going to buy a drone tomorrow I'm never I don't know anything about them what should I be on my purchase list just to get just to get started That is a really good question and I I've, I've been asked that by police fire EMS schools I mean let me tell you the one thing you shouldn't do Hey I want a drone let's go buy a drone We have a drone now what are we going to do with it Right uh, don't do that Number 1 I tell Everyone at the start, define your mission. What are you wanting to do with this? Are you wanting to do high-definition video? Uh, okay, that's going to be something like a, like a Mavic or a Phantom 4 that's going to shoot in 4K video and, and geotag your locations for maps. There's that one. Um, or you just want to chase wildlife with it? Well, then maybe you don't need to spend 1500 bucks on a drone. Maybe you can get an older generation one that's 500 Okay. Um, if you're wanting something with thermal vision on board, then you know, that's, that's the opposite end of the spectrum, like the, the Mavic Enterprise where you're looking at around $3,000. So the first thing I tell everybody is define your mission because your mission will help tell you what equipment you're going to need. Um, once you decide on a flight platform, whatever form that's going to take, uh, you're going to need to figure out your support equipment. Um, the two things I will tell you as an old RC geek and a guy who flies these things professionally, the two things you will, you will need the most of are batteries and propellers. Those are almost the number two things you need. I mean, batteries are pretty self-explanatory. You need them to keep the aircraft in the air. The vast majority of your drone batteries are going to need roughly an hour to 90 minutes to charge. And depending on how much movement you make in the air, you're going to get around 15 to 20 minutes the flight time, maybe a little higher depending on the manufacturer. So if you're going to be out in the field for a long time, you either need to have a lot of batteries or four or five batteries and an in, in the truck charging system that's going to charge them. You run the first battery down, you put it on the charger while you run the other three or four batteries. By the time those are, are done, the first one should be charged up. So Depending on your mission, again, that will help define your equipment. So batteries and some form of charging them in a safe manner. Lipo fires are nothing you want to deal with, so be careful about that. Um, I use a 50 caliber ammo can with the lid taken off of it. So in case anything catches fire, it's, it's relatively contained. Uh, the other one's propellers. Uh, you will probably break propellers at some point. You'll come into land. You'll hit. Uh, you'll kick up some gravel into the rotors and snap them, or you'll get into the ground, ground effect of the aircraft. It'll try to flip over and break a few of them. Those are the number two things uh, that, that I, I recommend to everybody. Um, 
other minor things you should have with you. I, I recommend a battery meter. Some DJI batteries will actually have a little meter on the back, like the old Duracell batteries when we were kids. You held the, the, the top and the bottom together, and it gave you a little green meter on the side. Some of the DJI batteries will do that for you. That's great. It's built in. If yours doesn't have that, a little meter will tell you which ones are full and which ones are empty. Um, other than that, you're just going to need a, a way of processing the information, uh, a computer that will handle the information, uh, a good place that you can store the data to access it later, uh, and then always keep in mind your PPE for when you're flying. I will tell you right now, when you're flying one of these things, you're either going to be very cold or very hot, especially in the airport environments, um, because you're going to um, be in an, in an area where there isn't a lot of cover, uh, so you're going to be at the mercy of the elements. So if it's cold weather, make sure people, are, you, know, you and your flight crew are thoroughly covered up. Uh, you've got orange vest for, for safety or yellow vest for safety. Uh, same thing for in, uh, in, in hot, hot weather conditions. Uh, sunglasses, you're going to be looking up at the, so at the sky to, to view this thing. Sunscreen, uh, you know, all the water, hydration. Just make sure you're taking care of your people. So a lot of the, the equipment that you need is pretty basic, but just make sure you have it. Right, yeah, definitely got to make sure you're, you're – it doesn't do you any good if it's sitting on your – sitting on the desk. Right. Um, so, all right, so we got our drone. We got, a, we got our mission defined. We're going to be doing X with it. We got, we, we got a drone that's good for it. We got our PPE. Um, what about, like, actually going out and conducting that first flight op, that first mission? Um. Uh, I mean, being in an airport, airport environment, I'm, I'm assuming, I mean, one, talk to tower, uh, definitely right. talk to tower, but um, any other steps or, or tips or anything like that for somebody that's, that's kind of doing yes. this their first time around? Absolutely. And this, I would encourage everyone to keep this in mind before you ever start the program. You need, first off, there's a difference once you get your, your 107 license, your remote pilot certificate. Um, there's a difference in the classes of airspace that you are going to be flying in. And most of us probably don't know the classes of airspace unless you're a pilot. Um, I was an airport guy for 10 years before I went back and got my, my private pilot license. I couldn't have told you what airspace I was in the entire time. Um, class, according to the FAA, controlled airspace is class, for our purposes, class B, C, D, and E. Bravo, Charlie, Delta, and Echo. If you are flying in controlled airspace, you have to coordinate that with the FAA electronically online. No phone calls to the tower. So that's in class B, C, D, and E. That's uh, airports like New Orleans or Memphis. C is uh, Little Rock is a class C. Uh, class D are going to be your smaller airports. Uh, also, things like your, your Air Force military bases, class E. There's a few class E airports around. If you're at a small airport that's in class G, golf, or uncontrolled airspace, you don't have to coordinate with anybody. You just have to see and avoid. So it's good to have a VHF radio, listen to the common traffic advisory frequency, know where the airplanes are, announce your presence, that kind of thing. For most of the places that wildlife professionals will be operating, at, they're probably going to be a controlled airport, which is class B, C, D, and E airspace. To fly there... It's going to be very, very important to coordinate with the control tower ahead of time. And I'm, I'm talking weeks or months ahead of time. If, if you're setting up use at these airports, um, 
the, the part 107 and the Lance and things like that are designed for people that are flying near airports. It's not really designed for flying on airports. Right. Um, it, it, to, to basically cover what the Lance is very briefly, the Lance is the low altitude authorization notification capability. If someone was wanting to fly near an airport two years ago, a controlled airspace airport, class B, C, D, or E, they had to file 30 days in advance online with the FAA before they flew. And, you know, I don't really know if I'm going to be flying 30 days or sometimes 90 days in advance, depending on where you wanted to be. Right. Now, the Lance uses information from the individual control towers to break the area of that airspace up into quadrants, and they have pre-cleared altitudes. Out, you know, five miles away from the airport, drones are cleared to 400 feet. We can do whatever we want as long as we file online through an app, a Kitty Hawk or AirMap or something like that. And you can take off. You can go to 400 feet. You won't bother anybody. You just have to file it on the app before you fly. Two minutes after you file it, you're done. You're good to go. The problem is over airports, the Lance is zero. You're not supposed to be flying at all over airports, especially your controlled ones with the airlines coming in and out of them, things like that. Lots of people affected in the event of a crash. So what you need to do is really set up a letter of agreement with your control tower. Uh, I highly recommend getting in touch with your tower manager uh, and, and establishing, here's what we want to do. Here's the scope of our mission. We want to fly during daylight hours near the perimeter fence to document this or to, to chase off birds. What are your limitations? <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, we want to be at 50 feet above the ground. We want to be at 200 feet above the ground establish what form of communication you're going to use. Are you going to call the control tower? Are you going to use a, or a VHF radio? Will you have a VHF radio to monitor traffic in the area while you do this? Basically, it's going to be a compromise between the airport operator and the wildlife staff and the control tower because they need to be on the same page to make this work. And the reason I say start this weeks or months in advance is that you may wind up in a situation where the control tower isn't isn't comfortable with you doing this. And it's not going to do you a lot of good to go out there and spend $3,000 on a Mavic Enterprise with thermal capability on it and batteries and support equipment and everything else if the control tower is not going to allow this. And they can always say they're not going to allow it for safety reasons. So that discussion between the airport operator and the wildlife professional and the control tower, the tower manager, is going to be very important. And I suggest you do you start – that is your first thing you do before you go buy something really cool that flies around that's also really expensive. It turns into a paperweight at that point. Right. I mean, these things – I mean, even though, even a cheap one's really not cheap. Um, I mean, you're talking a few hundred dollars to get – just to get in, into the game from what I understand. Right. Yeah. I mean, so you definitely, definitely want that. Um, right. So – I know we talked about that it, it kind of depends on your mission. Um, uh, are there any, but are there any, do you have any recommendations for drones? Like somebody might be wanting to, to go pick one up, like um, for what, for, well, we're talking specifically for wildlife control, but are there any that you've used that have kind of like this, like this is the real deal. This is what, this is what I would recommend to anybody. You know, that's a good question. Uh, I have an odd recommendation at the start. I, I, I tell everyone their first drone needs to be something cheap and disposable. Uh, <laughs> look, trust me, guys, you're going to wreck it. It's just going to happen at some point. Uh, 
My favorite that I use for training people is a Sima S Y M A X five X ray five. And there is a version called the X five S W Sierra whiskey. Uh, if you can find one of these things on Amazon, they're generally 35 to $45. Uh, they're about the size of a dinner plate and you will, uh, it, it does a, it, there's no GPS on board. It is strictly pilotage. And it, uh, it does have a little Wi-Fi camera underneath it that will Wi-Fi back to your phone so you can get used to seeing what the aircraft sees while you fly it around. It's not very stable. Um, it is incredibly durable. That's one of the best things about it is you can take this up. You will learn how to manipulate the controls, how to pilot that aircraft. Again, cre- treat it like it's a manned aircraft. Pilot the aircraft and learn what to, what you need to know to operate this aircraft. Yeah, and God forbid a, a later one, the GPS fails in flight and you have to fly it, uh, that kind of thing. So start out with something expendable. Uh, batteries for it are maybe you know five or seven bucks each. They're great. Uh, I've, I've had sixth graders run them in the walls before, just dust it back off and take off again. So start out with something like that. It's really, really great. Uh, again, the, depending on your mission, uh, there's there's older generation Phantoms. Phantom 3s are probably the oldest you should go with. Um, and you can probably find one between five and $700 right now, uh, maybe a little cheaper, that kind of thing, because the current one's the Phantom 4. They may be coming out with another one. Um so the older generation Phantoms are fine if you've got a, a startup startup of a program. You don't really have the need for thermal capability. You're just wanting video or, or, or dispersal activities. Those are great. Um, I'm a big fan of the unique brand aircraft myself. I, I really love my, my unique Typhoon H. Uh, it's a hexcopter, which means there's six rotors on it. What's really neat about that is that if you lose one, it's additional safety. If you lose a rotor. Uh, so you've got six. If you lose on, on a quadcopter with four rotors, if you lose one, you're coming out of the sky like a brick wherever you were. Uh, on a hexcopter, if you lose one, it will enter what's called five rotor mode, and you can at least get it back on the ground controllably. So it does add an additional margin of safety. Um, I'm a big fan of the unique Typhoon H. <clears throat> if you're going for something that's that's more uh, in-depth, on the on the higher end, there are, as we've mentioned several times before, the 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 Mavic Enterprises have that built-in thermal camera. It's fairly low resolution. You'll definitely pick up something the size of a of a deer or a person. You may have a harder time picking up something smaller out in the field, like your your small mammals and things like that. Um, I mean, if you're wanting to go all in and you've got the budget for it, there's DJI Matrices out there that are extremely large quadcopters with very high-end thermal vision on board. You probably pick up all the animals in the field that you would ever want to with one of these things. Problem is, you're going to pay about $33,000 for one. Uh, yeah, yeah. that's why I say yeah. start with the $40 drone, okay? Go go whack yeah. that into the wall first. <laughs> so uh, there's, there's a number of different options out there, and don't neglect the fixed wings. For if you're trying to reach out there, I, I cannot tell you, uh, how many times I've taken my four cell uh, scale model Spitfire from the Battle of Britain and I've gone up there and dogfighted with hawks and all kinds of stuff like that because I'm doing my thing and then this thing comes zooming in behind me at 200 miles an hour. And all of a sudden I'm in the middle of a fight with something that wants to kill my airplane. Uh, I, I, the, the fixed wings take a little more skill to operate 
Um, but the fixed wings can be very, very effective for dispersing your larger birds. They can go higher than the, than the, your, your quadcopters will. And they, they'll have a longer flight time, too. You'll have, with a, with a drone, you know, multi-rotor, you have to turn each rotor. So, you know, yeah, 15, 20 minutes is probably pretty generous. On a fixed-wing aircraft, the same battery in it, it could be flying for an hour and a half. So <clears throat> you really have more capability, but it requires more skill as well. Right, and then that's be kind of going to be, um, just from a wildlife aspect to it, I mean, you could probably adapt it to surveys, like if you ran it in kind of like a, like running transacts, running a gridiron, something like that, I mean, you might be able to, to run it, but it definitely seems like it'd be more of a niche, like more of a dispersal tool than, a, than like a surveying tool. On, on the fixed wings, you mean? Yeah, with the fixed wings. Right, right. No, and the fixed wings, uh, I mean... Again, that's why I always say define your mission at the start. Right. For most of our environments, uh, the, the, look, when you have your, your agreement with the control tower, they're probably not going to want you to be over 200 feet or so in the airport environment anyway. So, you know, I, I think multi-rotors will probably work just fine for that. Yep. And they're also easier to operate. But just keep that in mind. If you have a special need for one, you know, the, the, the fixed wings do have a place out there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, so I mean, folks definitely have have some options, and, and like you would, I mean, you said it multiple times too, is make sure you're defining that mission. And um, I mean, nothing says you can't have two either. I mean, you can you can or more. Uh, right. So you can kind of you can kind of tailor your loadout kind of depending on what the mission of the day is. Like if you got uh, if it's migration season or you got something where you got large birds around or any kind of bird really, you can take out that fixed wing and go just go for lack of a better term, go hunting. Um, yeah. Versus like if you're doing like survey season, sore times, I mean, take that quad out, take the hex, the hexcopter or something like that. And then, so you can kind of tailor it. So, but, but then again, just kind of tailoring it to, to what your mission is. Now that that's, that's an excellent point. And a good thing to keep in mind here is drones, UAS, whatever you want to call them, are not the end solution. They are not a panacea. They are not a magic bullet. Uh, there are some birds that couldn't care less, but you know what? You can obviously document what they're doing using this this tool, this device. Uh, it is an additional tool in your toolbox that can give you greater capability. It's not going to solve everything, but it's going to give you further reach, okay? And, and, and more, more capability, more usability with your time, provided right. you can out the use in that in that controlled surface area right i mean i'm just kind of i'm just kind of sitting here thinking that it's um especially with, with, with those medium to large raptors uh like i mean everybody kind of goes to pyrotechnics um for wildlife right. control but um with those raptors i found most of them just just don't care no um i mean you can but if you had something like this this extra tool in your in your pocket um, so to speak, I mean, you can use one to reinforce the other. I mean, if, uh, if they're getting, uh, shot at pyros with pyros, um, and they're shot or harassed off of a, a loafing pole or something, go chase them down with that drone. I mean, if he knows your truck's going to, if your that truck shows up and here's a pyro, he knows he's going to get his tail kicked by, by a fixed wing or, um, right. or a rope falcon or whatever, whatever you, you choose to run that day. You know, that's absolutely right. And and I've done wildlife control for a number, number of years, and we all know that anything static 
is going to get they get used to it very very quickly you know your bird balloons your plastic owls and things like that anything static is going to get adapted to pretty quickly so you have the option to use something that's dynamic um, you know your your general generally your pyros your 15 millimeters have a effective range of maybe 150 feet maybe. on a good day yeah <laughs> yeah with tailwind uh, that kind of thing but with this, you can go all the way up to 400 feet without having to use a Kappa launcher and it costing you 20, 20, or 30 bucks a shot to get up that high to, to haze and harass them. Another thing, I did some experiments years ago when I was just, just flying, this before the drones came out, just flying RC airplanes. I had hawks that were messing with me at my, at my flying site. I went and bought one of those personal defense alarms, those 120 decibel personal defense alarms, and just duct taped on the side of the airplane, activated it, and took <laughs> off. I'll tell you something. Hawks don't like 120 decibel personal defense alarms. Uh, if you can figure out a way to remotely trigger one, you've added a way to uh, increase uh, the, the, the dynamic nature of your wildlife response. You've got something flying me and it's making a loud and flying near me and it's making a loud sound. I really don't like that. I'm going to go somewhere else now. So, I don't like that. That's, oh, no, yeah. that's a good trick. I mean, that, that's, I mean, that's, that's wildlife management too. I mean, it doesn't matter what, what you're doing wildlife. I mean, having that ability to think on your feet. Cause, I mean, nine times out of 10, uh, when it, especially for, for wildlife management needs, nobody really makes the tools a hundred percent. Like you kind of got to build your own, you got, or at least modified to your own, your own needs. And right. um, no, but using that, that one twenty decibel, I mean, that's a, that's a good trick. That's I like that. 1799 at Academy. Uh, <laughs> The, the, the thing to keep in mind here at the same time, I will offer a warning, is if you have a collision with one, if you have a collision with a bird, obviously it's going to depend on what kind of bird or, or for, for some reason, if you hit a mammal with one or something like that, right. uh, you are expected to file a wildlife strike report online. So you have to file a strike report. It's like a manned aircraft. Uh, you, I'm going to tell you right now, if you get too close to something and you hit it with either a multi-rotor or a fixed wing aircraft, you will both lose. You will, you will injure the animal, which is, we don't want to do that. Also, uh, like your multi-rotors, if they detect a load on one of those rotors from hitting something, it will shut all of the other ones down. And all of a sudden your, your aircraft comes out of the sky like a brick. Okay. So you want to maintain some distance when you're doing this. Uh, birds and other other flying uh, mammals, you know, like, like your bats and things like that. For some reason, they can't see the, the or, or grasp the concept of the, of the the rotors on the outside. They can see the center portion, so they they may strike at the center portion, um, but they can't figure out what the rotors are around the outside. All right, is that something like maybe you, if you used like like some sort of like a UV paint, something like maybe that would really highlight it to them. Um, I don't know. I don't know if there if there's something in that spectrum, or if they just can't grasp the concept of those. It, it, it doesn't look like anything that appears in nature. Oh right. So, yeah. so uh, my experience has been you will sometimes have small birds strike at the at the back of the of the drone, and if they get off center and they get into one of the rotors, then then everybody loses at that point. Right. Well, I mean that's I mean that's where the soft spots are in nature, though, is at that backside. I mean that's generally the, right. the least protected, and that yeah, that's what they're going to go for. Right. Um. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Those. I mean, definitely, you definitely don't want to be hitting one. I mean, um. Although I, I I do have to smile that you still have to file holiday uh strike form. Right. Um, 
uh, even though you, I'm, I don't like. Well, you can't really say you knowingly hit it, but you had a pretty good chance of it. He zigged when they should have zagged. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um. No, that's. Yeah, I guess I just didn't think about that part. Um, but they are like like what we've talked about is they are an aircraft. I mean, all the all the pertinent aircraft regulations still apply on top of all these other um, the part 107s and et cetera, all these, all these extra regulations. Um, exactly. But from what I've kind of taken out is that there's a lot to remember. There's a lot of regs. There's a lot of small stuff. But just like anything else, I mean, the first time you get into a, an activity, there's always a learning curve. But in all reality, I mean, as long as – your airport is okay with it as long as it's good with tower and, and you can get it cleared. It's really not that bad getting into this. Um, yeah, I mean, you have some gear requirements, all that kind of stuff, but um, it's really not that hard. Like, it's not like it's not going to take years to get like a like a pilot's license or something like that. It's something you can maybe not do in a weekend, but it's not going to be super long term either. You know, you're absolutely right on that. And, and when you look at and one of the things people need to consider with this is the cost aspect uh if you're for some of the capabilities that these things have you'd have to have a full-size bell jet ranger with like a police thermal camera underneath it to, to do some of the things that these can do yeah yeah eight or nine million dollars to buy one and however much a year to keep it up and operating costs per hour things like that with these <clears throat> if you consider get your i would say your steps you should do if you're considering this program Number one, get your license done because your your FAA Part 107 Road Pilot Certificate is good nationwide. There's not a regional license or anything else. It works nationwide. So number one, get in there and get your license done. That's $150 plus if you take a, a training course like with me, whatever cost that would be, that kind of thing. Next is wherever you're wanting to fly this, start the process of getting it cleared. And it helps if you have the license to say, I'm a certified part 107 remote pilot. And here is what I want to do at the airport. And because that's probably gonna be the longest portion of it is you going out there and set, setting up what your limitations and use cases are and things like that for each of your individual airports where you would be operating. Again, your small airports in class G, you can go out there as much as you want. You can't interfere with the airport, but you do have to see and avoid. So it's actually more, more freedom out there, as long as you have your your, your pilot or your, your 107 license. So get your license, coordinate with the control tower, then get your aircraft based on your mission. And you're right. Once you have your license and then your aircraft and your equipment, it's it's really kind of a buy once, cry once thing. You have to renew your pilot's license every two years. Everyone from a, a, a Part 107 up to a, a airline transport pilot has to renew their license every two years. And then the aircraft, as long as you don't wreck it too badly, it'll last seven or eight years as long as you replace the batteries. So it, you, your costs, your initial costs for doing this are a little stout, but the continuing costs are very low overall. Right. And definitely what I'm hearing is like, like um, you were mentioning that the, the, the part or the the class G airspace is those like, um, like those uncontrolled GA airports. Right. Um, it's going to give, I mean, I'm thinking, especially for those airports, it's going to have, give them a lot more capability to know what their issues are. I mean, cause usually those kind of airports, they are not always, you know, they're not always fenced in. They're not always enclosed. Um, just cause I mean, fencing is expensive. Right. Uh, and I can think of quite a few that have timber, 
you know, stands of trees on site and um, that, I mean, you can't, if even if somebody wants to go out there at midnight and do a spotlight survey, that spotlight's not going to pierce that timber. Whereas if you can go out midnight, one in the morning or whatever, um, with one of these thermal setups, it's a lot cheaper than the fence is, but you can fly over that timber and go, yeah, I've got deer here, deer here, deer here. Oh, there's a coyote, there's a rabbit. It's, you can kind of get a better... You, you kind of know they're there, but it's going to validate, yeah, this is what I've got. This is my issue. You are exactly correct. And there's a, there's a, there's uh, here in Arkansas, I think there's 97 uh, airports in the state. And there's maybe 10 of them that are, that are controlled airspace. All the others are class G uncontrolled GA airports. Most of the airports in South Arkansas with the deer population, it is known if you're coming into land at night, do a low pass down the runway to scare the deer off the runway, then come back around and land. So if you were able to put your, your drone up and at two in the morning and go, I counted 15 deer on the runway and another you know, 30 or 40 in the woods directly next to it, you've already established a lot more information that you would have been able to on the front end. Oh, for sure. I mean, and like, well, I know the South um, Arkansas has a, I mean, y'all have got a wicked deer population, but, um, like even in the Northeast, uh, uh, I mean, well, let's face it. I mean, between Canada geese and white-tailed deer, um, I mean, well, <laughs> the, I mean, the two most dangerous, uh, uh, right, right, uh, two dangerous types of wildlife for air aviation. Both populations are exploding. Um, right. Uh, what did what's the stat now? Like twenty million white-tails. Just, just white-tailed deer. That doesn't even include the muleys and the black-tails. Right. Um, just 20 million muleys. Um, uh, I can't. Another, I had the number tip of my tongue, but I mean, you've got millions of of Canada geese and and a lot more millions of snow geese flying around. I mean, that's. Uh, but if you get some extra tools to kind of harass them, I mean, it's fly once, cry once, but you're gonna sleep better at night, kind of thing. Unless you're up at two in the morning to chase deer, but. Right. And, and uh-huh. the, scary, the scary part is it only takes one strike especially so take- on, the, on, on your, your smaller aircraft in particular. So, yeah, it, it's, it's an additional tool in your box as long as you set it up the right way, you do the legwork on the front end to get all this coordinated and legal, then you're going to have a lot more capability as a result. But it's going to take some effort on the front end. And you'll probably have to go with your control tower or the FAA headquarters or whatever. You may have to go back and forth three or four times before you get something sourced out. Oh, right. But, I mean, it's, well, what's the old government saying? Hurry up and wait kind of thing? It always, of nothing, course, of course. Nothing ever happens quickly. But, right. Uh, <laughs> um. All right, Brandon, we're, what are we at, about 52 minutes now? Um, I got a couple more questions for you, if you don't mind. We'll, we'll try to wrap up inside of an hour. Um, first one I got for you is, what's something you know now? I mean, you said you've been doing this for, for what, 13 years with, with RC and Jones now. And what's something, what is one thing you know now that you wish you knew when you started, whether with RC or when you first started with drones or just something you wish you knew then? Oh, that's a good question. That's a very good question. Uh, number one, don't panic. <laughs> something is going to go wrong at some point. Your The way you plan for it is going to help mitigate how, how bad it is. 
I was, uh, I had finished a photo job and I was hovering in my front yard here, you know, flying the batteries down at the end of the day. And all of a sudden, uh, my unique, uh, it was an old Q500 came out of the sky like a brick, just boom into the ground. I went and took it apart and found that the, the battery had gotten so hot, the negative terminal desoldered itself up inside the aircraft. Ooh. There was no way I could have spotted that on the front end. Plan your flights well. Know where you're going to fly. Know how high you're going to fly. Know what you're going to be near. Know what you will be over. And plan to fly in places where if the worst possible thing happens, either it comes out of the sky like a brick, or if you start to have a loss of control on the aircraft, that you will you won't cause anything bad on the on the, the front on the back end really. So your planning on the front end will help prevent any accidents on the back end. Because again, I've told dozens of people this. It is not if you are going to crash it. It is when and it is how bad. Okay? So right. with that in mind, it's best to have two if you possibly can or have spare parts, that kind of thing. Oh, I got another. So something to add on to that too is um, you mentioned the spare parts. I never asked you, do you bring any kind of a toolkit or anything with you? I mean, you got your drone, you got your your batteries i mean do you ever bring like a like always have like a screwdriver at least or duct tape electrical tape like is there any kind of gear list if you duct tape your drone back together you are asking for failure (laughs) (laughs) uh uh so here's the thing you are uh i always recommend uh again rotors and 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 props uh batteries are your main ones there are kits out there. Some types of drones will have folding arms, like my unique Typhoon H. You can replace the entire arm by taking a series of screws off and replace the entire arm. Uh, others, like my old unique Q500, if you wreck it, it was 77 screws to get it apart and 20 solder connections just to get the, the airframe apart. So I don't think there's a lot of things besides rotors, maybe some skids, landing skids or something like that. Uh, that you should have with you. The rest of the aircraft is not going to be what I would call field serviceable. That unique Q500 with the battery that desoldered, great flying aircraft, but uh, it took me three days to get that thing apart, fix it, put it back together. All right, so definitely either have a backup or you're going home. Oh. Uh, two is one and one is none. <laughs> yeah, I've been hearing that theme a lot lately. Um <laughs> All right. Uh, so my my well, really my last question for you is, uh, what's I mean, you got your drone is especially I mean, well, I guess it could be your drone. What is your like? Do you have a favorite drone? Do you have a favorite piece of kit? Like, um, is there anything that you that you absolutely I mean you have to take with you? Like, if you don't leave the house with that, you might as well go back to the house. You have anything like that or? I, I've, I've generally flown unique products. Uh, I, I, I like being able to modify them. They have a lot more options for customization in the aircraft and the user database and things like that. Um, the DJIs are wonderful. There's a lot of options that they, that they come with there. They also plug in very well to drone deploy and other software solutions for putting maps together for, uh, uh, for being used in the Lance, that sort of thing. Um, I, I, I don't think there's any one particular thing that I have to have. I, I just make sure that whatever aircraft I'm flying, before I leave the house, I make sure the software settings are updated. 
because nothing worse than driving two hours to get somewhere and finding out that it won't fly because the software has a firmware update that hasn't gone through. So there's so check your software settings. Um, pre-flight the aircraft. Make sure everything's hooked up. Make sure everything works fine. No rocks in the motors. No chips in the propellers. All these good things. Make sure the batteries are charged up. I I I'm currently flying that unique Typhoon H, that hexcopter. I, I really love it. And some of the things that here, I'll tell you why I love this one so much. It is absolutely reliable. It has, uh, I've had GPS failures in flight. It maintained its poise. I was able to get it back on the ground safely. Uh, it has handled winds from 18 wheelers driving by me on the interstate at 80 miles an hour. Uh, I have the backup of losing a rotor if I need to. And here's another one. A lot of these come with no fly zone software programmed into them uh, to keep you from flying near a busy airline airport and things like that. And there have been stories of emergency services drones trying to respond to emergencies on the airports, and they couldn't fire them up because of the lockout software. They were too close to the airport. So the same things we're talking about operating them in the airport environment. One of the cool things about Unique is they have a system to take the no-fly zone software off the aircraft entirely as long as you provide, uh, you, uh, you sign off on a waiver with them and, and fill it out online and send them a copy of your Part 107 license. So you have, you've demonstrated you have the license to fly safely and a certain level of knowledge as well as the waiver and accountability and tracking the aircraft back to you in case you do something that is unethical or stupid. Uh, and then once you do that and upload that software onto the aircraft, you can fly pretty much anywhere. So you don't have to worry about additional steps, filing online or clearing a code or anything like that. Just fire the aircraft up and go. The DJI aircraft have a few more hoops to jump through. There's a little more scrutiny on them because they're the number one company worldwide. Um, so they have a few more additional roadblocks in place. As long as you account for them, they're wonderful aircraft as well. I just I tend to prefer the uniques. Right. No, it's good to know. Um, yeah, I think that's all I got for you, Brandon. Um, thanks for coming on. I mean, it's been it's been awesome talking with you and, and learning a bit more about drones, and uh, definitely hope that our well, I know I've learned stuff. I mean, hopefully our listeners can get a uh, some little tidbits out of this too, and maybe they can help themselves uh, bring up their, their wildlife levels, wildlife uh, management levels. Absolutely, uh, Jesse. I've uh, it, it, I've really enjoyed this. If anyone has any questions, they can reach me through my website, UAS Arkansas Uniform Alpha Sierra Arkansas dot com. Um, I teach classes, an eight hour class to for lack of a better term, a crash course to prep people for the 107 test. Uh, the people go, go take, take the class, go take the test. They have their license. They can roll on from there. Um, or uh, I do consulting on the side as well. So if there's anything I can do to help out from an aviation, an airport, and a wildlife standpoint, just please let me know. Yeah, for sure. And I'll make sure we're going to put your the website you just gave. We're going to put that in the show notes of the show. So anybody that wants to look you up, um, just go in and like, click on that, and they'll go they'll, – take a shot right over to your website and um get you hooked up sounds great just everybody fly safe yes sir well thanks again and i hope you have a good rest of your day thank you you too all right bye